So I've had a few podcasts in the pipeline now for a while. A couple ideas I've had and some people I want to get on the show. But like the idea originally was like I was going to record all these things really quick in tandem. I'm like, I can't fucking do that. Like, that's exhausting emotionally. So I said, well, I'm just going to stick with the once a week thing for the most part. And then Log and, and Magdalene had a schedule that would only allow for the same weekend and ruined my plans. So now we're going to go to the other side of the coin to someone who's been extremely flexible and just like, whatever, dude, like whatever you want to do. Um, and, you know, it's somebody that you probably would not have guessed this person was coming on the show or that we're going to talk about what we're talking about. But it was something that for us, it just made sense. Um, I met this lady at Guardian Con. For about all of eight seconds, we like shook hands, we smiled at each other, but we knew a lot of the same people, and we were enjoying a very particular moment with a certain gentleman by the name of my name is Bife. He was drinking a fruity drink, and that was uh, <laughs> that was the moment when I met this individual and announced myself as like, "Hey, I'm I'm fucking Beard Grizzly's cohort." They're like, oh, like you. And then Bife goes off. It was, it was hilarious. And we'll probably go more into the story here in a second. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, green-eyed music lover. Let me actually, you know, have her seeing on the screen would be nice, right? 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 Now you're on the screen. You're live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's so, up? How's it going? It's going. Um, so I can only imagine it from your perspective. You're at a table with mm-hmm. Bife and Grizz. Um, mm-hmm. one of your co-hosts, I forget which one, and, uh, Blue. wasn't Unknown mm-hmm. there as well? Unknown was there. Yeah, he was unknown, sitting next yeah. to Bife. Right. And, you know, around comes this school bus-sized red-bearded guy, you're like, oh shit, where's this going? And... It's... <laughs> it's Guardian Con, though, right? It's Guardian Con. It's... There's right. gonna be everybody and anybody shows up. That That is true. Um, and right after, like, wait, like, Grizz introduced all of us, and I hung mm-hmm. out for a few minutes, and that's when James proceeded to have the fabled fruity drink. Oh, God. I Tell want that, that clip. I need Beard to send me that video clip, because he actually like has times. it. Yeah, oh, I know, God, and I, I was so going to put it... I have a, a real quick Vidoc that I made. It's a 23-minute Vidoc of Guardian Con, and I was like, let me have the fucking thing. He's like, mm-hmm. you didn't shoot it. I'm like, come on, dude, I'll, put, I'll give you credit. Like, I want to put it in there. And he's like, nope. <laughs> So all I got is this lame video of me and Bife hugging, which is like... Well, it's, it's something. Lame. It's me and It's Bife something. Hugging. It's good. You know, and James well, is awesome. Oh, gosh. Now, the thing is, what I can't remember for sure, if that drink itself is the one that Cosmo sent over, because mm. Cosmo and Deej sent over a drink to Bife, and we find out a little bit later that that drink was a virgin drink, like a virgin pina colada or something like that. Mm. And Bife had chugged it. And Bife was already slightly inebriated at this point anyway. And he's yes. chugging it. And we're all like cheering him on at the, at the table. And Beard, oh my god, that video is so funny. But he, immediately after finishing the drink, he acts even more drunk than he had been. So it's just like, dude, if that's the virgin drink, you are an entertainer by heart. Oh, hey, buddy. Yeah, you could, you could, yeah, you could tell by his like enthusiasm. Like one thing, like I think is, if anything, like, even if he was guilty of drinking orange juice all night, right? Right. From my perspective, like here's a guy who has such raw, unbridled enthusiasm. Was like, you know what? Mm. It may get a bit creepy if I continue this throughout the night. So I'll just act drunk and it'll work out. Right. Yeah. He's you know, just and, he's a goofball. Yeah, a but goofball. you and then you contrast that 
with Beard, myself, and Mylan, who had plied ourselves mm. with scotch the night before, to right? major ex- major excess. Um, and there's, it's, there's a video of it on this channel. You're welcome to watch it. And it's funny. We're screaming Malin at him at, at large, oh, God. large volumes. And, you know, and then he was like ghost banning people in my chat. It was quite good. It was fun. Did you did you were you there for when the uh, number four lore thing that happened? No. Oh, wait, no, oh, I was. I was. I was. I was. Yes. Yeah, yes, I was. So this. It was right after the panel that they did, the lore panel. Uh-huh. And Bife, Beard, and Blue, or not Bife, Beard, and Blue, Bife, Mylan, and Blue. Beard was there too. But, uh. That's like a song or like a children's book. Bife, Mylan, right? and Blue. Beard was there too. It, it rolls off the tongue really well. It does. But they were signing uh, autographs and stuff like that in line. And apparently, uh, Mylan started putting number one lore because there's like that whole thing between Bife right. and Mylan. And so Bife started firing back by changing his one into a four <laughs> in the signature line. I'm like, you guys are just little shitheads to each other. Come on. Yeah, they really are. Um, it re- It's really funny. And especially now, like, for me, like, I'm not a lore guy. And spoilers, for those of you that don't know, Focus Fire Chat, this is this lady's baby. And mm-hmm. arguably, like, the best outlet for lore that isn't, you know, Ishtar Collective itself. Oh, um, thanks. Absolutely. And um, I don't watch it live often. I watch it after the fact. I'm that guy. Because mm-hmm. especially on Friday nights, that's my community night. And by the time... Right. Because the thing is, like, I don't want to show up to your stream fucked up on, like, six beers. Like, it's not going to, like, what do you mean, Vexer <laughs> Milk? What? Fucking... <laughs> you know, it's not going to bode well. So it's better for me to right. watch it later. Right. Um, but it's weird, like ever since Guardian Con and a couple chance meetings, I'm kind of like flowing in and out of these different lore tribes because you're all different, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I did the podcast last week with Log, who's a whole other beast. Man. Oh, yeah, he Love is that guy. His music videos crack me up. Oh, it's so good. Did you see his machinima? Do you even riff, bro? I didn't see that one. No, it's I haven't like a seen year that. ago. It's. I'll put it this way. He did a, a full-blown machinima, mm-hmm. and the opening is, he's like, there's something about this guy. I can't put my finger on it. And he's, he's got like a, it's, it's a male voice, and it's an exo, mm-hmm. but it's a female exo body. Oh, God. And then he figures out, it's like, oh. <laughs> You're like, oh. <laughs> and it goes through this whole thing. Um, you know, he, 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 this guy, he writes comedy and, and narrative a lot better than he right. would ever admit to himself out loud. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but be that as it may, um, we could socialize all afternoon, and I would love to do that, but that's For not sure. really why we're here. Um, it's all right. I have a graduate degree in education and curriculum instruction. You've actually been an educator in the field for several mm-hmm. years. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I taught, and I'm actually out of education now based Uh on moving into a new state and the licensing hoops that you'd have to jump through again. But I taught K-12 through music in Kansas for five years, and Mm -hmm. I taught anything from preschool, kindergarten. Preschool was like every once in a while, but kindergarten all the way up to high school choir, and I taught band for a while as well in small districts and medium-sized districts. Never got into huge, huge classrooms but i did work with a band that was 90 people so nice it's it's a thing 
Yeah, and it's something where I think that's a unique perspective on education as well, uh, mm -hmm. because you're not just teaching, you know, the basics. You're teaching self-expression, which right. I, I always go kind of go to Kevin Smith on this because how can you possibly fail at self-expression? Which is it's subjective. Um, it is. It is. But, it, but at the end of the day, like it, it's a matter of my my counter argument especially when we're talking about the education of music and me being a musician mm -hmm. as well. Like that's even like, Oh my God, we can share everything. You and I, it's, it's pretty right. Cool, so, um, to me, when you learn a technique on a musical instrument, it gives you the toolbox to express yourself in a more varied yes. and dynamic way. Mm -hmm. Comes from the guy who's drumming. sounds like a jackhammer hitting, you know, steel. That's fine. Hey, that's my jam. Double bass is fine. <laughs> yeah. But uh, as far as learning how to ha give self-expression, a lot of the times is giving kids the opportunity and the freedom to not be in an environment where they're going to be judged immediately. Because right. that's what buttons them up half the time, is that mm -hmm. they feel like they're going to be judged by everybody, and so they don't do it. And especially when we're talking about music teaching to the younger mm -hmm. children, I think that's really what that's about. You know. Mm -hmm. Claire, I remember back when I was that age uh, and hitting the triangle or the block. And, I, and, and I, even then I had musical tendencies and I'm like, this is stupid. Like, why? Because to me at the time, it was like having a PS4 controller and they, here, you can have the X button. Like, fucker, give me the right. whole thing. And, right. And there, I think you're always going to have kids that, that are going to react that way. Mm -hmm. but to some of those kids, it's the first chance they've ever had to just do something. Right. I mean, there's different philosophies that music teachers follow. Uh, there's like the Suzuki method, which is super, super structured. And then there's like Del Crows, which is very free form. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's different philosophies for sure in how you teach them. I tended, when I was teaching elementary, early elementary especially, I tended to give them um, basic guidelines, but not give them what they had to do. So mm -hmm. they had a lot more free form play and were able to express themselves a little bit differently yeah and, and that's i feel that, that that's a big part of music and it, you know we talk about it as expression you know my favorite book is a book called the art of uh changing the brain by james zoll mm -hmm. I don't, i'm if you're familiar um for those of you not familiar uh this book is by the dean of the university of maryland i believe dean of education out there and he's also an award-winning neurologist so this guy takes the educational principles and the ideas of neurology and links them together and poses this idea that if you can create an emotional context when you provide information, it will stick at a much higher rate. And by virtue of that, you will then not only engender uh, growth of learning, but in some cases, even a desire to learn because you're now like putting endorphins with learning. And right. I was like, ah, wow. And mm -hmm. it's an obscenely easy read for what it is. And it's extremely is, common sense to talk about, but it's mm -hmm. in some ways a little bit more difficult to implement. Right. Because you have to understand what kind of emotions, what kind of brain chemistry you have to mm -hmm. be able to conjure while you're doing this. Like you wouldn't like, it isn't as simple as like, I'm teaching the civil war and I really want to get like through their heads. So I'll show them North and South. Although right. it's an example, you know, it can give you them an emotional um, perspective or context, but that's not giving them the emotional impact 
you have to that create the lesson to them. Mm-hmm. right and that's and that's kind of the thing i i look at that and i and i was into that book phew, six seven years ago or something right and and i'm looking at this is gonna set this is gonna date me guy y'all know i'm old but like i'm looking at the kids coming up now and i'm going did no one read that book like yeah it's uh, so much anymore, it seems like we're giving kids material to read without giving them the chance to engage in mm. the reading itself. I remember reading The Scarlet Letter. I remember reading Animal Farm, uh, Shakespeare, and all the standards that like they force upon you. Mm. Uncle Tom's Cabin. I mean, just all of those. And I don't remember having a whole lot of connection to them for some of them. Animal Farm, more so. I had more connection to that one and probably Scarlet Letter as well. But Mm. a lot of them I don't remember connecting to because you just, there's no, there's no adjustment to create relevance. Mm -hmm. And that I think is a, a big, big problem as far as like getting kids to read about different things or engage in like the North and South. Uh, Civil War stuff. History was actually my weakest subject in school. I could care less about American history back in high school. World history was a different story, but U.S. history, I was not, I did not care because it seemed like a bunch of greedy people just doing greedy things over and over, which granted, older and wiser, you learn things. But as far as having a teacher that could help create a connection, I remember having a history teacher who made us do a union debate, essentially debating to get union rights or get rights Mm -hmm. from big companies. And he put us in those positions to be able to argue for and argue against. And that we had basic structure of what we were supposed to argue for, Mm -hmm. but we had to create your own debate. And so I became a lot more aware of the various arguments and the various tendencies that those unions tend to argue for or those businesses tend to argue against. Like, how do you structure this and why it happened? Because I was able to engage in it more. But. And, and that's the thing. that It's all about context. It's all about how do you get mm-hmm. that information? Because it's, you know, even when we were growing up, you just have information just thrown at you all day long. Like, and you just throw mm-hmm. stars and you're just dodging. Like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And teaching to the test instead of teaching to the child. Exactly. You know, outcome-based education. Like, I, I heard about that yep. phrase while I was still in high school, and I'm like, like, finally someone understands, like, well, this will never reach mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even, you know, my daughter, who will be 15 in, in uh, March, she uh, she's having to deal with it, too. Right. Not as bad as it used to be, but it's still pretty fucking bad. Um, yeah it is it's i mean they're trying to change it with like the common core ideas but even that is outcome based still right what ends up happening because the question is how do you measure you know Mm -hmm. the the question how how do you have a standardized idea of measuring or some litmus for measuring um adhesion of an idea and Mm -hmm. But the thing is, it's not just about that. Like, if you look at the outcome base to a certain degree, I get it. Mm-hmm. The problem is that once the child or student, let's be fair, once the student, you know, demonstrates a clear understanding of the subject matter, our education system does not allow that student to move on. 
Right. And they're stuck. And that's when we start to lose some of the most intelligent kids. Right. Um, you know, I, I rebelled all through high school. I was like, this is stupid. I've learned all this. Mm-hmm. And to the point where I was a guy who didn't do homework. I would ace the tests. Oh, yeah. I, and, I'm there with you on that one. Yeah, geometry. I, I had a deal with the teacher. He says, look, if you really don't want to turn in the homework, that's fine. If you get a, you know, a B-plus or better on the test... I'll just give you a, a, a mark on the homework. Don't worry about it. But mm-hmm. if you get a C or lower, I expect that all that homework to be turned in by the end of the the, the term. Right. Never had to turn in homework. He was totally cool about it. And, That's awesome. Uh, you know, but then I went to Algebra 2 the next uh, year. Different teacher. Mm-hmm. He's like, you're an amazingly smart dude in math, but you're not doing the homework. I got to fail you. And I'm like, what? Right. Like, what do you, What? Like, it just didn't make sense. Like, you, how can you fail me? Like, I know this better than anyone else in this class. You know I do. How right. am I failing this course just because I didn't do the extra work? That's stupid. Mm-hmm. Then the next year, I do Algebra 2 again, and now I've got a chip on my shoulder. Right. I'm barely getting by. Uh, and then at the end of the year, um, basically, my, the teacher pulled me aside and says, well, I could fail you right now if I wanted to. I could fail you right now for what you did uh, last year in this other class because that was a disrespect to him it was a disrespect to this department and you're not doing well enough to, to clearly pass you. It's a decision making thing because you, your tests are good and the score was this. I'm like, for fuck's sake, lady, do I know it or not? Don't right. I, I understand being upset that, you know, maybe I upset you, maybe I upset your peers and I understand that. But I know the fucking shit. Like, I know mm-hmm. what I'm doing. And I just don't think that that's fair. To, to a student to, to do that. And you hear I mean, about that, that kind of thing all the time. Right. I mean, the problem is, is that what are the teachers really aiming at teaching? Are they aiming at teaching discipline and adhering to the curriculum? Or are they teaching the curriculum itself? Are they teaching the concepts? I mean, there's so many different things that teachers tend to focus on more than anything. Right. That was like one of the biggest contingencies in my class when I was teaching high school choir is that if you can prove to me, you understand what I, what I'm doing by performing it or by being able to explain it in a very cohesive sense, mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit there and make you do worksheets or mm-hmm. crap like that. Because frankly, if you can, if you understand it, you understand it application. I get you do need to test it, but in choir application is the performance. Right. 90% of the time. I mean, there's moments where if you're going to teach music theory, yeah, sure, application of knowing intervals and shit like that, but that's not a high school class. That's a college class almost at that point. And, you know, I, uh, when I was in middle school, I started out, uh, I really wanted to do drums. I don't remember mm-hmm. wanting to do drums, but my mother swears I wanted to do drums. I'm like, oh, I'm I think, sure. I think, I think you're retconning it, ma. Um, and then I ended up doing saxophone instead, which is like, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I did saxophone for three years and I was, I was third chair. I was good at it. Wasn't great at it. Didn't, right. I had no passion for it. Mm-hmm. And then sometime at the, towards the end of my seventh grade year, uh, after we'd moved and my parents had retired, um, I was like, yeah, I, I do want to play drums because I don't know where somewhere, like, I don't know if it was the Black Album that did it. I, I, right. Know, my, my parents will tell you it was the Black Album. 
Mm-hmm. I'll be like, no, nah, I was actually Napalm Death Scum, but I couldn't play that. But I could play Sad But True on the right. drums. So I was like, I, you know. And uh, it just kind of happened. And the thing is, I never tried to get back into band as a drummer at that point. Ninth grade, I was still doing sax. Um, and what ended up happening, something was going, they were going to go to Belgium that year. It was going to be this big thing. But my other classes weren't doing so hot. And my parents pulled me from the trip. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why the fuck am I playing saxophone then? Fuck this. Right. And so I, I stopped playing uh, saxophone altogether, and right around then was when I started taking drums more seriously. And mm-hmm. um, then I got a, a drum kit. My dad helped me like refinish it and everything else. And it just, I learned so much about drums by virtue of he and I having to take this thing apart and refinish mm-hmm. it. So by that doing emo- it. That emotional connection and everything. Um, and then I just sat and did it and did it and did it and did it and learned. Mm-hmm. So now fast forward to my senior year, I go to, uh, or, or, pardon me, one step back. I went into marching band, was not enrolled in a music class at all. Um, and I said, I want to be in the marching band. And they're like, well, what are you, what have you done? And I'm like, I can play trap kit really, really well. And they're like, okay, can you read music? No. Mm-hmm. Well, well, here, do symbols. Let's see if you can hang. And I could. Yeah. And so I slogged it out. And we ended up going to Colorado on that, and it was pretty cool. But nice. the, the experience itself of marching band, I was like, this is lame as fuck. Um, <laughs> and I always make the joke, like, I always, like, had a hard time with um, the uniforms of marching band, and yet then would then go on oh, to play God. in, and then would play in black metal bands where like you uh-huh. have to wear the paint and the spikes, and it's like uh-huh. uniform. different thing though. Oh yeah, I mean, so, God, marching band uniforms are just so stinking restrictive. Oh, they're um, stinking. <laughs> yeah, they stink. that too. That Horrible. too, and they're just so incredibly thick fabric. Mm-hmm. I I luckily did not have a formal marching band all the way through school. I did end up teaching marching band during my um my student teaching mm-hmm. which was rather amusing considering that i did not have much of a background in it whatsoever but yeah um restrictive band form there are some band pieces out there that allow for creative uh expression in it but most of them it's you play the notes on the page yep. and your creative expression comes through your dynamic changes and shit like that, but it's really, it's still fairly restrictive. Mm-hmm. Uh, creating the thing, it's so hard to do with music because you, there's not a lot of improv taught anymore. And right. improv is scary to a lot of fucking people. Yes. And you said you played saxophone. I played saxophone as well. I played saxophone through college and Improv scared the shit out of me for years, and it's still, it's intimidating. Right, because on on any woodwind instrument, you run the risk of sounding like a dying flamingo if you're not careful. You know, anyone who's listening to a John Zorn record will tell you that, you know. Right. And and you're like, what the fuck? And there's that fine line where it goes from, like, unintelligible noise to something resembling art, which you can say with any instrument, but saxophone, woodwind, for some reason, for me... That's the one that's like, if you're going to flop your proverbial woodwind dick on the table, that's the one, you know, like uh-huh. improv for that. It's like, you know, because you can kind of oh, fake yeah. it with, with your brass instruments. 
Yeah, because you have three fucking vowels. You can just right. move them as fucking. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. I, if, if I've had got, this conversation so many times. It's yeah, like, if, if you if you got the right embouchure on a brass mm-hmm. instrument, don't worry about it. Right. Boop, 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 boop. Like it's not hard. Right. Right. Comparatively, not yeah, I'm not I'm not hating on tuba players, mind you. No, oh, well, tuba is one other fucking beast in and of itself. It's like dear God, farts for days. But the brass uh, elephant. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But saxophone, um, saxophone's like the big one for improvisation. You see it in clarinet too. But any of the woodwinds, because you're dealing with all fucking 10 fingers, multiple keys on top of each of those fingers most of the time, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of, lot of ways to mess up. And yep. if you don't know your chords, if you don't know your keys that you're dealing with, it's just, it's it, a fucking it, mess. So it's going to be a train wreck. Mm-hmm. And. So here I go, self-taught, uh, mm-hmm. still can't read music. Going right. my senior year, and I said, Doc, I don't want Dr. Booker, who I'll always, mm-hmm. I love that man to death, Dr. Roderick Booker. He, and he was the one that kind of inspired me. He didn't understand anything I was trying to accomplish, but he wanted to make sure I got there. Because mm-hmm. at the end of my junior year, I had opted to do um, a small talent show performance with a keyboard player. Right. And he was like, what? He just didn't get it, like, because we were doing, like, this Depeche Mode meets Napalm Death kind of thing, and he wasn't getting it. Um, right. But he let us use the trap kit, he let us use the equipment, whatever. So I came mm-hmm. to him, and I said, I'm not going to do Marching Man anymore, I just don't have the time. Um, I'd really rather focus on, on my drums and, like, really focus. Can I join Symphonic and try to, like, learn some theory? He says, sure. There's no precedent for this, but I'll let you in. He says, my, my ask of you is that, you know... When things don't click, you speak up because these other people have been learning their craft for years and years, and they have a formal training. Whereas mm-hmm. you have raw talent that they may not have, but you don't know any of the structure. Like you lack context. Some of them lack natural ability, and somewhere in the middle, right. you gotta you gotta meet your peers. So it kind of worked out that way, mm-hmm. and it was like the geometry thing where I he couldn't test my music reading. He couldn't test mm-hmm. that. But what he would do is let me sit in for all the other tests. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go up there and having learned it by ear. And if I knew it well enough by ear, I was good. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I'd show up for the show and I'd get the A. And sure enough, I did. Um, right. But in my spare time, like, he was trying to teach me how to like write you know, drum kit music. And mm-hmm. I had no concept of it. Like He would show me and I'm like, I think I get it. And to this day, like, sequencing stuff is very difficult for me to do. Um, I will tell you, as somebody who has written, like, done arrangements of fucking songs for musicals and shit, Trap Set is the hardest thing to write for. Period. There you go. I, I do not think it is an easy instrument to write for because you have so many different variables that you have to deal with because you have all the different drum heads, you have multiple types of cymbals, you have any other type of auxiliary you attach to it, whether it's a fucking wood block or a cowbell or whatever, mm-hmm. there's a lot of shit that goes into writing trap set. And I basically in college, when I was writing orchestrations for shit, if I knew the drummer, I'd basically say, go play this style, have fun. Right. <laughs> That's it. Because yeah. I, I did not know as much about the trap set and writing sequences and uh, forms or styles as they did. Let them do it. Yeah, it, it, it's um, 
it's a real and then they have it coming from the other side where I, I would do sessions from time to time, you know, years later, and I'd say, Look, don't hand me music. Tell me what you want. Tell mm-hmm. me what you want. Let me hear the track and, and we'll sit down, we'll figure it out. Right. And it it's I right before I sat down to do this, this is part of why I was like, I have to record this no matter what. I just watched a documentary on Netflix about session players mm-hmm. and how like they come in and all this stuff and um I was like, man, like, I remember what that's like. I remember, again, when you're young and you're playing music, I find that, like, you have a certain idea of how things are supposed to be, or right. you're, and you're limited by your, your experience and your exposure to mm-hmm. stuff. I had mm-hmm. a pretty wide palette of music that I was into, but there was big chunks that were missing. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, and it was and remains that classic rock kind of like, you know, anything that's on like the, you know, like the ACDC, yeah. you know, Ted Nugent, like, like, you know, the bar staples never had right. a fucking, I never had a second for, I jumped straight from queen and tears for fears to napalm death and morbid angel. No right. middle ground. Right. Now, and I would also argue that a lot of the synth pop stuff, like tears for fears in particular, some of the heaviest mm-hmm. music ever written, they just happened to use chintzy electronic instruments. If you put that stuff on a, like a detuned like, you know, tune a guitar in standard starting with A, <laughs> and then which a lot of death metal bands do, and then you right. have them play Tears for Fears through a damn you know triple rectifier amplifier, mm-hmm. it's gonna sound amazing. Um, right. And people, I think, um, have these different ideas of how the again it comes from their education, right? It comes from this like. <laughs> This idea. She's like, education, hard. I don't like it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he doesn't so like stupid. it either. Structure's bad. Hi. <laughs> Let people express themselves. Oh. Pretty much. Pretty much. But uh, you, you were limited by those things. So I would go into a session, and for warm-up, I'd be hearing these classic, like, payola riffs and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or nudes or something like that. I would not know what it was. I've been playing a totally different beat than what was in there. Like, wow, that was a really cool beat you put to that whatever song right. it was. I'm like, I thought that was you. They're like, no, man, it was this artist. I'm like, oh, okay. So are we going to do this or what? And these are these little things you learn. But that, for me, was kind of come back to, like, our main ideas here. Like, your perspective, your upbringing, your bias right. all has a, 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 a kind of a, a role to play, whether you're the student or the right. teacher. And I feel mm-hmm. like maybe the bias in the youth of America now is I can Google it, but then they don't Google it. Right. It, There's kind of. Yeah. I mean, and this can go into so many different topics that yeah. tend to be pretty salty. Um, the whole idea. Means, sodium up. Oh, gosh. Yeah. By just the concept that. Uh, participation award type things and yeah that one that one's always a fun one to kind of go into because kids don't necessarily think they have to try because Mm -hmm. they always get something for it Mm -hmm. and whether it's fucking a um, just pat on the back recognition oh great you did the thing I mean yes learning how to express yourself in a not necessarily a non-judgment zone but a i hate using safe space but that's what it was in the classroom for me because everybody in the classroom no matter what they did 
everything was okay as far as like if they're playing and just experimenting with shit. Everything was okay. Nothing was off the table. Did I have them fucking learn? Oh yes, you have to know your note names, all that shit. Yes, they still had to be able to identify all that crap. But when it came to doing solos or le- being able to play something for the concert, percussion instruments for the concerts, the kids had to demonstrate it. And there were there were soloists who were better than others, and they got it. And the other kids, yeah, great, good job for auditioning. That was really brave of you. Keep working. Right. Because I mean, it's such a fine line to say to a kid that I'm sorry you're not good enough versus great job. I'm glad you tried. You should try again later type things. It's just there's so many like tightrope walking you have to do so much oh, of that. Because, you know, you also then there's the context of of that student of what can they take? You know, some students right. are driven by saying you're not good enough. Yes, yet. yes. You will be like just saying you will be if you keep working it, but you're not now. And some of them will just be like, "All right, let's go." Uh, others will be crushed by it and never pick up the instrument again. Do you think that there are more students who are the second one now than there used to be? Yes, people get I do way too. too easily. I think people allow themselves to get too. shut down, um, and I feel like there's a. You could even. We started off before the show talking about destiny and talking about the destiny community. Mm-hmm. You can see evidence of this in discussions about video games or any subject people are passionate about. Right. Where they're so insecure, you'll get one <sighs> of two things: they'll either shut uh-huh. down or they'll start flinging personal insults immediately. Uh huh. It's, it's because they've never been taught that it's okay to have a differing viewpoint. Like this whole idea of like, and this is again a big feeling of the educational system, in my opinion. Somewhere in the last 15 years, someone decided that facts and opinions are the same thing, apparently. Uh, well, yeah. That, that <laughs> fucking shit. Mm. Yeah. Because if they didn't have to like learn facts to get through school and they got their participation trophy, mm-hmm. whatever they think must be right because they're being rewarded all the way along, right? And then well, you get douchebags all the way through college. I mean... Mm-hmm. The... We used to weed them out. Now we don't. We used to. I mean... You kind of do a little bit still with sports, which I'm I'm glad that that still somewhat is there sure. because there's A team and B team still. Now, granted, there's if you're in like a PE situation where everybody has to be able to play and everybody has to be able to participate, that's something totally different. But like, if you're trying out for a basketball team and you make a t- A team, that's kind of a boost in the right direction. If you're on B team, you know you got to work your ass off to get bumped up to a starter on B team and then get bumped up to bench on A team and work your way through the system. Mm-hmm. It's not like that in a lot of different areas anymore. And I don't, I'm, I guess I just don't really understand why we've gotten away from it so much just because of parents being offended that their kid isn't the best. I think you can put the nail on the head right there. You know, people uh, do not want to have shit kids. Yeah. You know? um, my phrasing I'm about to use is going to be offensive to some of you listening at home, uh, but it is a direct quote, so you can go after Jim Jeffries if you don't like it. Um, Jim Jeffries had a great point. He said in one of his early stand-up specials, if you're a dumb cunt and your wife or husband is a dumb cunt and you have children, guess what they're going to be? Dumb fucking cunts. And it... 
it's a very brash and very, very, you know, abrasive way to say it, but it's true. There's mm-hmm. only so much that you can create from raw material. Um, and there's, it's where we are, and this is something that you talked about earlier, we are a result of our surroundings. If you're going to act like a fucking asshole at home, guess what your kid's going to do at fucking school? They're going to act right. like assholes. That's just what it is. It's just... Yeah. I wish... That more people would understand what what they... Re- reap what you sow kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just don't get that. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll never forget uh, the very first time I ever knew what racism was. And... I was at the dinner table and looked at my dad and I said, what's up? And I said the N word. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, and he just stopped me and he's like, where did you hear that? And I said, well, a kid stabbed me in the knuckle with a dull pencil after he called me it. And he started laughing hysterically. He's like, son, first of all, never use that word. I'll explain it to you another time. He says, but if the person... If you were called that by someone, you have nothing to worry about because that person is stupid and will amount to nothing. Um, and jealous. And the fun, the fun part is, I don't know if you can see this chat, and then you won't be able to, the light's not good enough. I still have a, a graphite mark in my knuckle from where he hit me with that. That's how, how hard he stabbed me. <sighs> Dumb. He basically tattooed me with a thing. But it was just <sighs> one of those moments, and I... um. You know, he told me later what it was, and but, but it mm-hmm. kind of showed that like my parents had done such a good job of mm-hmm. keeping me away from hatred, keeping me away from um, the negativity, which can backfire, and I think it really did with me. Right. Um, first time I ever heard the word fuck, we mm-hmm. were watching The Breakfast Club together, and I went, and I he's like, fuck you, fuck you, like when he was a kid, right. like at the end of the day, he's crying, and I went. Fuck? And like it's very bad word never using. I'm like, yeah, but what's it mean? I don't know what's going on in the film. Like, I don't mm-hmm. care. Like, I won't swear. But what what the fuck is going on? You know, right? Um, and yeah, th- this was something where that was this weird thing. But then, I think that smart parents and educators will recognize growth. So yeah. fast forward ten years, and my dad and I are pruning trees in the front yard, and we're you know, getting the branches off. One of them slides off in a direction we weren't expecting, slices my arm. Mm-hmm. I'm like, fuck! And he's like... And I, and I realized I had never said that in front of my father before. I'm 18 mm-hmm. years old. That shouldn't matter. I, but I, you know, I've never said this in front of him before. And he goes, you all right? I'm like, yeah, this hurt like a bitch. He goes, he says, sharp wood does that, son. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's finish. I'm like, all right. And I'm like... Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I got away with it. What the fuck? You know. Right. Because um, anytime I heard him say it before, it was such he had it was such power behind it with him. If he mm-hmm. actually lost it to where he actually said that, you knew he was really mad, like red in the face right. and all that. Um, and but I the always thing... go ahead. Well, like okay, so one of the things I used to have to teach junior high kids, especially because junior high kids, they want to say it all the time, sure. is proper place, know where it is a. A, know that if you use it all the time, it's going to lose its effectiveness, just effectiveness, just like you were saying. And mm-hmm. B, knowing that you're not, to say that at school, it's like a job. If you said that at a job that is supposed to be like a high business type thing, mm-hmm. that's not going to end well. 
So treating school like a job and saying, hey, this is not the place to say that kind of stuff, use different language. You can be creative in how you say it. You don't have to cuss, though. Right. And that was, I mean, there was a moment where I dropped a, uh, gosh, a shell, a coral shell on my hand when we were putting it up one time. And I just, I didn't cuss, but I just screamed out a random, random word. And they all knew that I cussed in my head and they all knew what was going on. But it's just like, you don't have to use those words. You can use other words. Mm -hmm. You're more intelligent than that. Absolutely. And I think that when you reach that level of intelligence where you can use vocabulary and in varying degrees of effectiveness, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. For me then, and, and this is this is this is my path where I I want to take the power away from all the negative stuff. I want to take right. all of it back. So I'm gonna say fuck as much as I want because it's just right. a word. You know, George Carlin. But you're you're an adult content. now and right. it's your forum and it's your I mean, it's a different it's dependent on the place you're not going to mm -hmm. go into freaking i just a symphony orchestra concert and yell fuck as loud as you can during the performance i mean that's just not the place to do it although Unless it would be kind of like funny written. it would be kind of funny and it would be a really neat like way to segue into like some some metal type stuff going on sure absolutely the thing i would argue though that like there are certain um like how cool would it be to take like the most beautiful like London Symphony Orchestra, like their, their, their choir, they have like a 120 piece choir or something. Mm -hmm. Why not take one of the most beautiful ways of expressing oneself and then just have every word be fuck? But you could have it like do this thing where, again, it, it doesn't have to be that staccato, vulgar. Right. It's just, it's a, it's a way of, of channeling the notes. You know what I mean? So, like, at I... what point does it become. In what context? Where's the line drawn where now it becomes, oh, well, now this is bad? I believe it's been done, but I can't tell you which composer did it. Mm -hmm. As far as, like, writing out pieces, George Carlin style. And sure. it, the thing is, is, though, so much of the music industry when it comes to classical music it has mm. their neck in a frickin' brace half the time about what they're doing. Because it's just, oh my god. Yes, there are pieces out there that get into some raw and gritty stuff. I've done a piece on rape. I've done a piece on um, depression. Mm -hmm. There's some really, really neat pieces out there that talk about hard shit. But most of the community is just like, oh my god, you can't talk about that. That's not, that's not proper. You can't do that. That's not something we should talk about. You should, you should just go back into your safe space. Which safe space is that? like what mm -hmm. is that you know it, it's the same thing you, you have the exact same problem on the other side of the spectrum okay mm -hmm. in 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 grindcore and death metal for example extreme music if you're not singing about something really brutal in on some level the the assumption is that Your it's taking away power weak. yeah it's mm -hmm. taking the power away well now you look at a band like the senseless which is a one-man band a friend of mine does. He's an Australian guy. He used to be in a band called The Berserker. Uh, right. And his first song he came out with was called Vacation. It was about a guy who was stuck at work and really wanted to go on vacation. And it's a brutal song. Mm-hmm. And he just, and he just, he just took, just ripped the bandit off. So here. And he made what I, I lovingly refer to as cubicle metal. 
Right. It is artistically sound. It is really experimental, but it, it does. It's more of an angel for people who aren't depressed, <laughs> basically. Right. And it can be done. It's, and I, I don't understand why there are some genres that just will not allow that to exist. Those, those juxtapositions. I, I would actually say that it's mainly the consumers in some ways, a lot of the consumers fault because we tend to box uh, performers in into what they can and cannot do. Sure. Uh, so like think of Justin Bieber when he put out Desposito and now granted, this is probably the weirdest example I'm going to ever bring up on a show about with metal and stuff like that. But <laughs> I have very, very limited um, experience with metal, unfortunately, because I grew up with classic rock and my family did not like anything that was out of their little box. But uh, like Justin Bieber, when he did Desposito, everyone just went uh, kind of thing. Yes, it's a pop song, but it's Latin. A, he does not speak Spanish. And he got caught really, really bad about not being able to speak Spanish. Spanish. But a lot of people had issues for a while until they realized that, hey, this can actually work a little bit. Mm -hmm. And most artists don't feel like they can take that chance. Because if you do take that chance, half the time you get shut down because, sure. oh, you're selling out. Or what are you doing? This is not you. This is not normal stuff. Who are you using your music from? I mean. Well, even a band like Queen, who is known for being chameleons. Oh, my God. Like, yeah. they were known for being chameleons their whole career. Every so often, someone would come up and be like, what? So, like, mm -hmm. I always like to point the point, because Queen is my favorite band, like, on the same head as Napalm. Uh, mm -hmm. Those two, because to me... People are like, if you could just take two albums, I'm like, uh, first Queen album and the Napalm Death Peel Sessions, I'm good. Right. Um, those two, I'm good. Because it covers all the emotional range that I need. But mm -hmm. um, they did an album, uh, I believe it was Hot Space, and they had mm -hmm. a song. That, that's one where, I think it was, was it another one, Bites the Dust? I want to say it was another one, Bites the Dust. That's um, one of them. Uh, that, that's from the game. But with one mm -hmm. of the songs on one of those two albums like started charting in... Uh, in funk charts in the U.S. and played on predominantly black Motown radio stations, and people were uh, really latching onto it and were and would go to the shows and were shocked to find that these were a bunch of white Englishmen playing right. this stuff, and that it wasn't the only thing they played. Mm -hmm. um, and although they were, it was a gamble that paid off for them at the time. They looked back on it and were like, "How does that? How does that work?" and Again, this was 30 years ago. Right. We're not teaching our children to take risks anymore. Well, is there a band safe. that you can is there a band today that you can name off that has the variety that Queen had because no. Queen had Bohemian, Another One Bites the Dust, Crazy Little Thing Called Love. I mean, all three mm -hmm. of those are incredibly different. Mm -hmm. Incredibly different. Yeah, but and no one's taking those risks these days. No, because we have a cookie cutter system as far as the music industry goes anymore. Everybody has to follow a formula and every song is formulaic. This is going to sound really kind of awkward, but if I'm flipping through the radios, like the radio stations, mm -hmm. and I hear a certain chord progression, not even paying attention to the words, I can tell you 90% of the time what genre, even so much as saying, that's a class or that's Christian music, like mm -hmm. that's Christian rock or that's Christian mm -hmm. metal or that's rock and roll like 90s. And I, it's everything's so formulaic. And mm -hmm. it really started happening, I think, in the 90s. Yeah, because really 
80s, you still had some variants and you started seeing that a little bit, but mm-hmm. 90s pop just kind of wrecked everything. Yeah. And I think a lot, you know, you figure that's where the industry was going. Internet comes out and then everyone mm-hmm. wants to sound like what they think success is. Whereas mm-hmm. in the 80s, success was not manufactured so much as they said, this is really good. We're going to get behind this and they'd market the shit out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, like Ray Parker Jr. did Ghostbusters in 84. Right. What I did not know and what this film taught me was that he was a session musician before that. Mm-hmm. And he'd written a lot of number one hits, but never got credit for it. Mm-hmm. And he was going to quit. And then they're like, hey, we've gone through like, you know, two dozen artists trying to get the song. And Ivan Reitman is insistent that the word Ghostbusters be in this track. Can you give it a whirl? And he's like, I don't want to do this shit, man. Like, we'll give you $50,000 whether we keep it or not. Mm-hmm. He's like, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> so right, he stayed up for right. three days and wrote it. And then that became like what he was known for and stuff. And it was a risk because it was something that he didn't necessarily believe in artistically from a lyrical standpoint, but he was able to make a song he got behind and then did a whole album based off the success of that song that also went really far. It's, and isn't always about saying, I want to express myself a hundred percent and will society respect me. It's, will I take a risk to go outside of what I know? Right. Um, I was listening to a record that I recorded six years ago. The Mm -hmm. last thing I I participated in that got released. And I was like, I sat back and I was like, Jesus Christ! Because drum-wise, it was, it did not let up for a single second. Like, Mm -hmm. dynamics are hard to come by in grindcore. (laughs) but It's hard to come by in any sort of world with drums, just just saying. And the thing is that I, I've managed to find ways to do it. Like, one of the things I used right. to do a lot of, and I tried to do, you have a blast beat, which is just, you know, 16th or 30 seconds, alternating mm-hmm. with the kick, um, you know, bop, 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 which is fine. But to me, it's like, well, the right hand all that may also be doing alternates. Why can't we do something here that is now musically interesting? So what I would do a lot of times is, like, what would... Um, hit pitched cymbals to match the guitar tone. I would do polyrhythms on the bell, whatever. Right. To kind of... Break it up. Give, give, give some, some texture to it. Mm-hmm. Well, by the time I got to that, that record, which is the fourth record I'd done with them, um, I knew it was my last record. They didn't know that. I did. And I had written some of the most over-the-top blast beat, like 270 to 300 beat per minute stuff. And just went, let's just go for it. And we rehearsed it for a year. Now we mm-hmm. go into the studio and I'm playing it like at least 20% faster than we had written it. And I'm Dang. listening back to the stuff now and I'm like, fuck, it, it, it's too fast. It's mm-hmm. too fast. The whole record's too fast. It should have been about 10 beats per minute slower throughout the whole record at a minimum. But right. it's cool. And right. the songs are great, but well, I, mean, I can look back something... on it and say it's just too much. There's something to be said for having experimental type things like that, where you are pushing yourself technically. Oh gosh, now I can't remember the name of the band. Fuck. Um, there's a band that I listened to, and I'm gonna go and find it real quick because we were talking about it the other day. And sure. um, Mars Volta. There we go. Mm-hmm. Mars Volta put out some really good experimental shit. 
where they're working on all sorts of different things. Polyrhythms was one of the big things, but also working in multimeters, doing yes. seven, eight instead of your typical four, four meter, which mm-hmm. is what everybody uses. And it was interesting and it was fun to listen to. I like those kind of albums, especially if you're if you put it out saying, I'm working on the technicality, putting out just trying something. No mm-hmm. one's pushing themselves anymore with those kind of albums, it seems. They're not pushing the boundaries of their writing capabilities or their playing capabilities anymore. They're just doing not something unless you go safe. to like those far extremes. And right. by the time you get to those far extremes, a lot of those things aren't going to be immediately palatable and mm-hmm. you may miss it. You know, uh, a band called Meshuga is an example where they are just a droning dirge. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of low E. Um, and they use the core of like the higher registers more as effect. Um, right. More than they do for melody. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is being used as percussion. Every last thing. And the mm-hmm. drummer... Like Thomas Hockey, there's a couple of different songs he does where he's doing like a different time signature in, in his feet than on his mm-hmm. hands. Mm-hmm. So where like he'll write like a like a five six or whatever. Um, so he'll, and he'll let that run for four bars, and then I'll do four four on on top, mm-hmm. um, but behind it. So in other right. words, like he'll have like the the measures will overlap in this weird way to where you could write it to where everything's stacked along and it it meets everything meets at the end like a train track. Mm-hmm. He prefers to like kind of have it layered in this weird kind of almost like a lasagna, right? You know, right? If you can visualize like the toppings meeting and doing this weird kind of interlocking mm-hmm. thing, and when you first hear it, you're like, it just smacks you in the face. We're like, how is that humanly possible? But he's doing it, right? Um, well, I mean, and there's then... like classical music. Aaron Copeland did that kind of shit too. I mean, mm-hmm. if you and he's fairly modern in the classical world since, but he would take multiple songs and just stack them on top of each other and listen to mm-hmm. them. Hi. He's a guy like Aaron Copeland. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, he would just figure out polyrhythms and poly polytonic. That was also the fun thing that he got into. But the problem is, is that avant-garde type music like that, where they're really pushing the boundaries. The Our culture has gotten so used to hearing one four five one or mm-hmm. just a standard basic backbeat that they don't want to hear something that's a little bit outside of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. He was just really trying to support the point you're trying to make. Yes. Because he knows that that makes you comfortable being outside of comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to throw Yeah, he there. wants out is what he's asking for. He wants out of the room. <laughs> this is why I was lucky enough. I remember... When I was looking at places, uh, the, my studio is in the center of my apartment, mm-hmm. and the door is in the front of the room all the way to the left. So I can right. leave it open without there being a real problem for noise or anything visually, and then Bo can kind of come and go as she pleases. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, because I, I, I tried it once. I tried having her, like, shut in with me, and it, it did not work well. She like, was, like, jumping up, trying to, like... I don't know how this doorknob works, but I know this uh-huh. is the thing that opens the door. I know this is the thing to touch. You touch it and it opens, right? And, it, and my touch right. is not working. Yeah, my touch is broken. Can you yeah. fix it? Hey, please. Yeah. I don't have opposable no. thumbs, Mom. Yeah, my boys. <laughs> yeah, they're in here with me right now because Julie is cleaning up the house and she well. wanted them out of her way, so they get stuck in here with me in the office. Yeah. Fair enough. They're pretty good most of the time. 
<laughs> he's like, well, I'll stick around, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's good, all right, I guess. So, but yeah. And I and granted, we're talking about this in the context of musical expression, which I kind of had a feeling it would go down that road. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does kind of come back to what we're instilling in young people. Um, oh yeah, that confidence to like that that kind of moral safety of like, look, you can try something and fail spectacularly, but you know what? You learn something from trying. Right. It's going back to YouTube culture where this is what you're supposed to do versus what do what you want and figure it out kind of thing. Because kiddos will learn how to play a backbeat via YouTube and that's all they play the rest of their lives. They play exactly what the album had if they're playing, oh, pep band music especially. I had a kid who actually reminds me a lot of your story who did not read music very well at all. And he was in our big band. But he was the best at picking up just whatever kind of beat you gave him, anything. As long as he heard it once, he could figure it out. Mm-hmm. The kid was awesome as far as like pet band type stuff because he was able to improvise and add the melodic aspects into drums that you really hope that your high schoolers start learning at that point. Not mm-hmm. just the percussive background noise that you always tend to think about with pet band. Well, like, I think that when you teach yourself to do something, and like, when I taught myself on, I had mixtapes that I had in a boombox, mm-hmm. I'd pipe into my headphones, and mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of boombox, I know what kind it was, and I could pick it out of a lineup, if, but I don't know what amp it had in it, mm-hmm. but for some reason, regular old headphones that I'd cut and put into, like, these gun headphones, I could play along with drums, but then for some reason, later in life, I just could not find amps that were strong enough. It was weird. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I would play along to mixtapes I'd made of, like, it would go from Queen to Mm -hmm. Napalm Death to a John Williams composition from Indiana Jones to Cannibal Corpse down to Tears for Fears, and I would just kind of go through the whole thing, and there'd be stuff, like, especially with, like, the John Williams stuff where it's not designed for trap Mm -hmm. at all. So I had to fill gaps. I had to, like do this combination and what it forced me to do was experiment with the kit to do different things. Like mm-hmm. a lot of rock drummers, a lot of jazz drummers even don't pay attention to the fact that there's more to the symbol than just smacking it. Right. You know, there's an infinite number of sounds that you can get out of that symbol. If you know where to hit it and when to hit it and how hard and Hey Bo, come here with, with what kind of stick to hit it with. If you're actually sure. using brushes or if you're using regular drumsticks or mm-hmm. size of drumstick. Yeah. I mean that, that aspect, like learning how to play music based off of one style, I think is bad, but what you did when you were trying John Williams stuff, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy. There was a guy who was doing YouTube videos and he had a freaking ginormous kid that he would use. But he would play along with classical music and actually would play with symphonies very every once in a while. And I used to show that to a lot of my percussionists that, hey, Roddy, probably I, I can't remember off the top of my head for sure. It's been probably three years since I've had to show any of his videos because I would have young percussionists be like, this is stupid. Why am I learning it like this when I want to be able to play like that? Why do I have to like classical music? It's like you don't have to like it. But realize that you can create some really cool stuff along with classical music. Mm-hmm. Every, I mean, whatever you put on your headphones, you can make something work. You just have to be creative and willing to try different things that you're not used to. It can't just be that 
boom, chick, chick, boom, chick, chick, kind of thing. I mean, you can mm-hmm. do a hell of a lot more than that. You can be a lot more creative. You just have to give it a shot. Yep. Uh, I just posted a link in chat. Um, this is Derek Roddy with the ASU Wind Ensemble. Um, this is an example of what we're talking about. This is unlikely to be who uh, you guys talking about. But this is an example where this guy's a death metal drummer. He's one of the best session drummers in the world, no matter what genre you play. But he's known for for death metal. Uh, and mm-hmm. He was playing that style along with this uh, symphony orchestra, and it was really cool. Mm-hmm. I moderated his forum for years, and um, he's a um, great guy. And he was one of the guys that would, would really advocate, like, you can sit here and learn your meters and do all the exercises in the world and be technically perfect. but mm-hmm. If you can't figure out a way to apply that in a way that is creative or saying something, um, you know, th- what's the point of learning the technique if you can't express? And right. uh, he was always pushing, pushing that through. Um, and I, I always admired him for that. And, and we're, we're still friends to this day. And, and he was always very uh, supportive of the fact that I like, was the guy who would say, look, my... Uh, my left hand was was what I was known for that blast beat that snare hit and mm-hmm. but I would but what I was doing with the right hand you know side of my body was trying to bring flavor to that even though I may not be as fast or as technical as the next kid mm-hmm. you might remember something I'd written over something someone else had written and right. that's the kind of thing is like being technically proficient is great um, but unless you're taking it somewhere. Um, it may not be as viable because, right. and maybe that's part of it too. Being technical for the sake of being technical, it's like, well, well, then what? having technicality is good because you kind of have to have some sort of basics to be able to really solidify understanding a beat. I mean, that sounds kind of awkward and a little backwards compared to what you were talking about, but we've well, got kiddos... the skill to pull it off. Right. You have to have an internalized beat to be able to play anything. Mm-hmm. You you can't just start banging on something and expect it to be musical. That's, I right. mean, to a certain degree, it can be. But for most people, if you have no sense of beat, you will have a hard time dancing. You'll have a t- hard time marching along with somebody. You'll have a hard time playing any kind of music or even just being able to follow music, like experiencing it is becomes a lot more difficult because you can't recognize the internal heartbeat of that song. Right. There are skills that you have that would, I would consider technical that um, I think that any kind of drummer needs to have. And it has to be developed at a very, very young age. If you have a kiddo who does not listen to music, does not experience dance, does not experience any of that shit. By the time they get to their music teacher in, in kindergarten, they will not be able to sing and they will not be able to understand beat. And those are the very first two things that a kindergarten music teacher teaches. They teach us, they teach singing and they teach beat. And that's most of the year. If your student or if your kiddo doesn't have anything at home to experience with, to be able to feel it, to be able to understand it, they have no background. So that teacher has to start from scratch. It can be done. I had kiddos, I had a set of twins that were tone deaf as all get out, Um, could mostly get a beat. They were okay from time to time, but they had a little bit of trouble. It took me until third grade for them 
before they could sing on tune in tune and keep a beat with everybody else because they had nothing growing up that would help them establish it. It's there are skills that have to be there. Yeah. The basic, basic stuff. Now, do you need to know a fucking, what a fucking paradiddle is? Probably not. You can like a double paradiddle, triple paradiddle, whatever. You don't have to know what it is technically called or anything like that, but you can probably recreate it. And practicing mm. it will make other things easier, but you don't have to have it at that point. Right. And, and you know, we, we all talk about the basics, but like they, we were talking about this whole thing with like Meshuggah and, and uh, Copeland, they're doing these really crazy mashups of time signature. Like, mm-hmm. you don't have to know that to be able to Mm-mm. express. However, mm-hmm. one of the, my mantras always was if you can do 30 second notes with your feet at 280, Mm-hmm. doing eighth notes at 120 will be nothing for you if you know right. if you know your meter. So take right. the technique as far as you want to go, but know that the technique does not replace creative innovation. No, um, no, not at all. And, just because and, you can do something does not make it artistic. Yes, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And Right. Was, and that was something, the, that was the other end of that mantra. It was something I used to you know, teach with, uh, with lessons, ah. which was really boiled down to... Um, Learn all you want to learn, mm-hmm. but when you apply, the technique itself is not itself music. It's not no, no matter because you can sit there and just you know sound mm-hmm. like uh, you know a uh, a fly farting you know going at Doppler effect across the mic. You know it's like right. well, it's, it doesn't matter at that point. Um, and I think the same could be said for for raw any raw knowledge, whether it's history, math, English, what have you. Right. It's the context, and it's something that we do not, we don't teach kids that anymore. We just don't. And they, Some see... t- yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not enforced or it's not like Mm-mm. pressed to teach. Cause I mean, I taught that with music because it's a little bit easier for them to do that, especially choir. But, cause you have to, yes, you sing the notes on the page, but if you, don't engage in the music in the emotional draw of the music itself it's not going to come across good Mm -mm. period you can do dynamics well you can do all that well but if you don't actually emotionally engage it's not going to read right period Mm -hmm. and so i always i feel kind of bad because i always pulled a little trick right when we got to contest time one year i didn't actually have to pull any trick but because uh, we had a kid who who had some serious medical issues who ha- couldn't come to contest with us. And you kind of have to play the emotional card with high schoolers sometimes if they don't automatically block in. There are kids that will. Mm-hmm. But sometimes if you pull that emotional card and get them to sing with their heart in it for somebody else, that music immediately locks in and fixes so many problems. And it was cheating in some ways, but and slightly manipulative, but we did well. We always got wins with it. Yep, and that it's really, you see that any good educator or leader is going to know that. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think the best artists uh, learn to do that on their own. Like, like you hear about actors in the method, right? People mm-hmm. make fun of that. It's like, motherfucker, all the best artists do that. They just don't call it that. So like, right. um, it's kind of like, Right, you have to engage yourself. Like, um, 
I'll give you an example. Like the last thing I ever played as a high school student, it was something I had no emotional stake in at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I was playing Trap Kit for, for a choir, playing mm-hmm. a Kansas song I had never heard before. Uh, Carry On My Wayward Son. I had never heard it in my life at that point. Uh, and I had to learn it. I had to learn it in two weeks to a, to a point that I was comfortable playing it. And this was a style that I hadn't explored at all. Not really. Uh-huh. Like it was like, there's some queen stuff that goes there and certainly some Metallica stuff that kind of goes there. But if you mm-hmm. don't know the tune and you have no connection to the tune, but I had to make it sound like I had to back these people up, make it right. like what they're looking for. And, um, there was a guitar player that was in the chorus that we were playing along and she had never played with anyone before, like at all ever. And that was, uh, that was a challenge in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So this is when I learned the value of being the driver, saying, all right, I'm just going to go, and I need you to stay with me. I promise you right. we'll get to the end. Just stay with me. We're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. So I went in saying, like, you don't have to like this song. You don't have to nail it exactly as it was recorded, but you got to nail the vibe, and you got to give these people something to really latch on to so they can give a great performance. Right. And I said, and I said they're depending on you, you got to do this. And I was like, kind of like, like, you motherfucker, let's, let's go. And, um, so I did, and I added like little tiny, uh, flams here and there. I didn't go too mm-hmm. nuts with the drums, but I, I kind of gave it some really fat back, a really nice big bottom end, um, mm-hmm. and just really accentuated what little I had. And I, and I kind of tried to like signal it to, to the chorus that this was going to be a little bit different than rehearsal. Go nuts. Just the opening. Mm-hmm. Like do 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 do, and then you do the plaque, you know, the little flam there. But I just, just there's this. I, it's difficult to describe it as as a musician. I'm sure you understand this. Where it's like you just put a little bit more into it. It's not necessarily hitting harder, mm-hmm. but you're hitting through it. So it's like boom do do do, little like real big solid fat kick, right before we went in. They got it, and we just hit it, and it was cool. I hate, I still yeah. hate the song. I hated the performance. Oh, that's fine. But they dug it, and they sung their hearts out, and it was cool because the chorus teacher, who was this was her, she was this was her student teaching was teaching this mm-hmm. high school chorus, mm-hmm. and uh, we had not gotten along um, during the process of rehearsal because she didn't understand what she was asking me to do. Um, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not that guy. Uh, right. Says, I'm not. I don't have. You can't hand me the sheet of music. I'm not gonna be able to do it. I need you to be patient with me. You got to trust me that I will do this for you, but you, I need you to understand. And she didn't get me. I, she was coming from a very formal background. I was coming from a completely informal background. But I was like, this kid needs, she needs to have this. Like, this was mm-hmm. important to her, too. And I did respect her. Right. And she came up to me afterwards like, that was perfect. That's what I wanted the whole time. Like, I told you to trust me. And, mm-hmm. and we hugged, and that was that. And then, but inside, I'm going, "Oh shit, I pulled that off." Yeah. Right. Um, and there's something for any kind of music musical performance where you lock in with everybody else. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is really hard to teach. It's hard to teach in a regular classroom. I think more than anything else, you can teach it on the basketball court in sports a little bit better, but music. When you are performing something together and you feel every single person in that room, mm-hmm. it changes a lot. It's engaging with others and actually working together, right. having that teamwork. And, and it's I not just that... the teamwork, the dream work type thing. It's literally you can feel what they're doing. 
Yeah, and I think with live performance, too, the thing that you can never prepare anybody for because of fear, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. but your audience, there is a vibe in the audience. And I think that when, oh, when yeah. we're talking about, like, especially at high school uh, and earlier, you're not usually playing to people that are engaged in what you're doing whatsoever. Right. At the Parents college level. Because they have to. Right. Versus college where, like, if you have, like, say, a... Uh, marching band or band for like you know the football games and stuff they're engaged because that's a big part of the whole spectacle right it's the for... culture exactly and and then of course rock jazz musicians so forth the first time you play for a crowd the first time you realize that what you're doing can impact someone else um it is really you know life-changing but mm -hmm. then you look at like other parts of our culture that that isn't an immediate thing that you can latch into Right. And it becomes the opposite. Where mm -hmm. people will just throw their opinion out. They'll say whatever they feel like saying without any regard for what their audience is or what they could possibly, what the consequences of that is. Right. Because destiny. Um, <laughs> because I've, destiny. Uh, it just goes back kind of to what has been happening online with the community too with that i mean it's a very generalized what you're talking about is a very common thing across the board it doesn't matter if you're talking about video games or if you're talking about engaging with your community on something a political stance or whatever you're talking about actually people really engaging with each other doesn't happen you don't understand the other person anymore you don't walk in their their shoes anymore that concept has disappeared for some reason for some ungod known reason and the fact that we have people with the ability to be anonymous on the internet or at least appear anonymous like you don't if you put something out there on twitter and your face is in your twitter feed you could say that's not anonymous i will tell you it is anonymous in so much as that you do not see the reactions of the people who see that tweet that's right. You can put it out there and never have to deal with the consequences of it. And that pisses me off to high heaven. And I'm tired of seeing people who, for their own enjoyment and their own reward, creating a toxic environment and reaping benefits of people who want to also feel toxic because yes. that's all that it breeds. Because, like, you know, for me, it kind of comes back to something, um, you know, because I, I try to understand that some people, they're not being trolls for the sake of being trolls, necessarily. Mm -hmm. Many right. are, and you're right. Um, but a lot of times what I see and what, what almost makes hurts more is the person that says, I'm not having fun. Therefore, no one should be having fun. Right. And it's and like, it's just, like, bro, like, I'm having a great time, you know. Um, yeah. Beard it's like, I'm... Beard will tell you, like, there was a time where I told him, like, you need to fucking step back from Destiny right now before I punch you. Uh-huh. This was back yeah. in Destiny 1. Um, well, even this last week, last week he was having issues with this, too. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we had a nice long talk last week about it, and just like, hey, you don't need to feel like you have to do this. this if it's not fun, don't do it. Right. I mean... Yes, you're a part of our show, but don't feel like you have to prove to anybody. Do something that you're enjoying. Yep. That's what people want. They don't want they don't want necessarily all the knowledge and stuff like that. Yes, it's nice, but they want you. 
And he doesn't understand that. He he literally has no concept of that uh, Mm -hmm. because he doesn't understand that um, there are lots of people, lots of people Mm -hmm. putting that information out in various different ways. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But people latch on to personality. And um, he's got a good way of putting it. He's a good guy. And, you know, he's one of those folks that um, he will always put out 250%, even if it's going to kill him. because he thinks the effort is what got him where he is, and that's just not true. Um, production value is great, and knowledge right. is great, but it's like we said, all the technique in the world doesn't mean shit if you don't express it in a way that is palatable to the, the listener, which he does. He excels at that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that someday he may understand that for a split second, but then he'll go back to working really hard because, you well, know. I, I understand the working really hard thing, too. I do too. Absolutely. I I mean, anybody who I think really not necessarily deserves anyone who has really worked for what they do understands that working hard does help. Mm -hmm. It is not the end all be all. You can work for days and days to be a blacksmith, but if you just don't have the strength to actually be a blacksmith, you might not be that great. You might not end up being the world's best blacksmith, even though you work at it forever and ever and ever. I mean, there's that's just one of the sad realities that yes work does help it will make yep. things better but it's not the answer to everything yeah i think that a lot of times too it comes down to we're talking about creative endeavors whether it's music or youtube or twitch or whatever um mm-hmm. there are right now there's someone streaming on some platform and they are killing it and no one's mm-hmm. watching yep and Sometimes it's just that perfect timing of getting in someone's uh, crosshairs. And, you know, like, Beard would be the first one to say, well, you know, Mylon did this. Like, no, you did it. He just happened to see it. And so yeah. they will be like, hey, you didn't see this. And anytime we get that opportunity to be seen at our best, that's when, you know, that talent hopefully would shine through. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that's a lot of what our industry really kind of boils down to is like, you know, how do I get seen? How do I, um, you know, and then you see other uh, streams that, frankly, are not very entertaining, but they've got thousands of people watching for some reason. But right, I don't. There's an entertainment value that they find. Right. So, it, it, to me, it boils down to um, work hard, but know that if you are if you're enjoying it, someone else will, and it's just a matter mm-hmm. of getting yourself in that place where they uh, can see it and, and enjoy it. Which is something I think that we all work at. Um, right. How do I break through the next thing? Like, Grant has a great approach, which I have adopted because he, he just like, here's how I do it. Basically, mm-hmm. he just crawls up everyone on Twitter's ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's really good at it. And right. So what I just started doing was like, all right, I can, I can play piggyback. So I just started putting on a notification. Like, every time I find a, a conversation, I actually have something to add, even if it's just a funny thing. I'm like, I'm going to talk about this now. Right. And the funny part is. Go- Dragon does the same thing. It works, He's though. All over Twitter. Yeah, it does. And if that's the platform that you are able to do that on, awesome. Mm-hmm. My platform, I mean, I we were talking about this before the show went live. My platform is podcasting. I am better at the podcasting side than I am on Twitch, mainly because podcasting I record once a week. Twitch, I don't have time to be able to stream because of family and work and all that other stuff. So that's something that's not available yet. 
Could and, I do it someday? Maybe. I think you could. I mean, you're you're holding your own here, so don't worry about that. Because um, a live conversation, even though you know you're used to recording it, it's sometimes it, it, it's it's funny because you have to like there's a skill in just talking to oneself. Like you have to rehearse. Mm-hmm. You have to rehearse <laughs> narrating every fucking thing. Like right. I was making tea. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna put the leaves in here because the reason we do it this way is because this is da 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 da. Right. And you know, my my community makes fun of me when I'm playing Watch Dogs that we talked about before the show, uh, because I will talk through why I do things the way I do it. Uh-huh. Because, and I was like, well, the human brain wants to. Uh, you want to adhere inside the lines, and there's this artificial circle in which is you know we're staying in for the you know mm-hmm. source of this and. You know, mm-hmm. even though I'm hidden in a place where the only way you can get to me is to go outside of that line, but the human brain will not allow him to leave that line because it's just the way he's been taught to stay inside because he's been coloring his whole life. And right. he would just laugh. So, like, there's this meme, the human brain, and I actually well, just like, gotten... Yeah. It's like the whole thing, um, we want to be teachers. We want to be able to show people how we do things, and mm-hmm. it's not always the case, as far as Twitch or anything like that goes, because sometimes it is, yes, you want to teach somebody something and you want to be able to describe why you do something. But there's also the, because being funny, being funny for funny's sake is difficult when you don't have an audience to bounce off of. Right. I did comedic acting when I was in, um, when I was living in Kansas, I was in the theater and I always got the comedic roles because I could engage with the audience and feel what they needed at that time. So whether I was playing Iago from Aladdin and granted you could play Iago like Gilbert Godfrey. Thank God I did not, but he's one of my favorites. Oh my God, guys. But (laughs) it's just, you have to be able to read an audience and Twitch. It's difficult to do that on Twitch. I think because you don't have, the actual connection right unless there's a lot of feedback coming from chat and that's hard to do that's super hard to do so i find that with that you have to just create context and eventually (laughs) someone's going to latch onto it so like um my community kind of uh created context for me because Mm -hmm. my the comedy from my stream came from one place before where I would like comment on the absurdity of what was going on, or I'd be within a game. Like for example, until dawn, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great uh, basically choose your own adventure horror game. There's a right. wolf in the third act of that game that you can ignore it, and it won't. You never see it again. Um, but if you care for it and release it, it will protect you and give you an extra chance at surviving a certain encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you also have the ability and the opportunity to save that that wolf uh, from uh, from you know something that happens. I don't want to spoil anything. Um, right. And I, I decided that that character was the most important character to save in the entire game. I named mm-hmm. him. His name is Horus. And then when Rise nice. of when Rise of Iron came out, I went walking around. I'm like, I know he's here. He's here. Mm-hmm. And I walked mm-hmm. up. I'm like, Horus. How you been, dude? And I like fist bumped him, you know. Right. And for me, like I was like, there's Horus. And like that was kind of where my thing was. I would find and latch on to things. I would just you know, kind of find something to latch on to and then hopefully give them an in to latch on to. Then right. I changed schedules. I started screaming streaming for a different audience. 
and I've always had a tendency to kind of go off the rails with like the raunchy humor on some level. Oh um, yeah. But then some people came in the stream and they enabled that. They were just mm-hmm. like, go for it. They're like, go for broke. And it just became, it became it one of the things. It's it a became, bit. Yeah. It, it, it just becomes part of, of the context because now we just, we wear the mature label like a badge of honor. And we mm-hmm. say, look, we're, this is a place where you can be included. You can be who you are. Let your freak flag fly as long as you're letting everyone right. else's freak flag fly. And that's kind of what we've kind of staked our claim on. You know, um, there were some conversations, I will say, almost three or four times a night on community night. When, when did I lose control? Because I have. I've lost complete control. It, it, it's its own thing now. I'm just there to, like, give them, like, I am, I am the banner of the public event. You rally mm-hmm. to my flag. And uh-huh, I just sit there. Uh-huh. And, I, and once the event starts, I disappear. You know? You get your super, See, like, you start of iron? <laughs> See? <laughs> and it's easy to do, but it's fun to do, too. Absolutely. It, it's, you know, I think there's not nearly enough sex jokes in Destiny, honestly. Yeah. You oh, know. there's plenty. It's just a lot of people don't know where to dig in for those, those little sex jokes. Because... The Vex are written with just so many jokes you could make. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I man, mean... So much. Well, for example, I mean, you think about, like... I, I've often said, like, there's probably slash fic that, like, likens Cade 6 to, like, Commander Data in Star Trek. And he's been programmed oh, with how many techniques, right? Because he's oh, basically... God. He's basically, um, you know... Depending on how he's programmed, he could be reprogrammed to be a gigantic sex toy if you wanted. Right. Um, I mean, depending on if he has his own control over himself or if he has somebody controlling him. I mean, that could be a fun little adventure time. Yeah, it it would be something. And it would be interesting. But then you talk about, like, okay, so now we're talking about a human essence inside of what amounts to a six-foot-tall dildo. Uh Uh-huh. having potentially having penetrative sex with what amounts to a corpse depending on who you're having right. yeah it depends on who like if you're going after oryx or whatever right <laughs> i mean that guy's already horny <laughs> so well yeah like he you know he tried retroactive abortion didn't work out so great with that sword right um I mean, you know he also went through his sex change already so I mean, right you know yeah, to each fair. their own yeah, I can see that though. Like you know, Cage Six and Orcs at a bar. Cage Six and Orcs walk up to a bar, and oh, God. you know, can you just imagine like, how you been? Uh-huh. I just came in from the rings of Saturn. Bore my wings tired, you know, like. <laughs> and it, I just imagine like this whole thing going on between them, and then you know they have one too many, mm-hmm. and they think it's a great idea, you know. I don't touch me there, you know. I'm not sure why he sounds like Christian Bale, but you know. You know, it's fine. Bane, we can do Christian Bale or Bane, whatever. <laughs> Actually, no, that Bane would be no Gaul. No one knew who I was until I grew up. <laughs> you know, um, it, it it's funny. I I think that there's, um, there's space for interpretation, right? And I think right. that that's one of the coolest things about anything, any art, any information, and. I think it's something that when we talk about education and culture, although it may be one of the hardest things to teach, it is so important to learn. It is. In kind of what we were just doing, improvisation 
mm-hmm. is the willingness not to say no. Yeah. And improvisation is what breeds creativity. And it's being able to put yourself out there, even though the joke may fall flat or it may be great. But you and I riffing off each other right then, teaching that in the high school setting is difficult because we have so much structure that it's limiting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if we had that ability to let kids do something without having to say, no, you can't do that. That's not the way you do it. That would help breed more actual creativity. Yeah. So there you go, folks. Nancy Reagan was wrong. Don't say no. Say yes. Be willing to say yes to anything except perhaps drugs. And even then, that's arguable, but that's a different podcast. Right. Um, but as far as the official podcast is concerned, that's the Grides Head this week. I want to thank uh, Green Eyed Music Lover here. Where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter with Green Eyed Music Lover. It is kind of spelled out weird. So basically, go find uh, Grindhead's Jim's Twitter and then go through his friends list until you find me because <laughs> my name is spelled funny and I don't feel like spelling it out because it's like 16 characters long. But it'll be I'm linked there. below. It'll be linked below yeah. for you guys in the description. So thank and you for being here. I'm I really on appreciate Discord you. too. Yes, yeah. on Discord for Focused Fire Chat. For sure. Yep. Thank you for, so much for stopping by.